With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. A House panel holds the 2023 Farm Bill listening session earlier this month at the World Ag Expo. The nation's upcoming 2023 Farm Bill took center stage at the recent World Ag Expo in Tulare just a couple weeks ago. Farmers engaged with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as well as other members of the House Agriculture Committee. At a special committee session, farmers and agricultural groups, including the California Farm Bureau, highlighted challenges facing America's largest agricultural economy. Those challenges including water shortages, supply chain disruptions, and rising input costs. Last passed in 2018, the Farm Bill is an omnibus program focusing on agricultural and food programs. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into today's show headlines. The harsh reality of labor shortages. There's no denying labor is a big issue. What happens to the industry when there aren't enough workers available? Jim Austin, CFO of Virgil Nurseries, shares this harsh reality. From the business standpoint, you're going to see um, continued push into automation wherever possible. Some things um, I just just do not see uh, how it would be automated, at least with the technology that we have available. But that's not everything. All the things that can be automated probably will be and, and maybe even should be. And it's not that we don't want to have employees. It's just the reality that at some point, and, I, and I'm not... I don't know where that is, but I, I'm afraid that we're going to find it. And, and that is at some point, it stops making sense when the cost of trying to farm an almond orchard or a peach orchard or an orange orchard um, exceeds what you're going to get for it in the market. And once we get to that point, then people aren't going to do it. And I worry that if we can't get control of our costs and um, our, our government doesn't seem to be able to connect the dots between what they're doing and the increases that it's causing in costs for everybody, not just in California, but all across the country. We're not headed on a good road. Stay tuned as we'll have more on this topic in the coming shows. But right now, here's Agnet West Brian German with more Ag News. There are several market factors that are improving for almonds in 2023 compared to last year. Senior analyst covering fruits and tree nuts for Robo AgriFinance, David Magania, said it's a bit of a mixed bag as to what's causing supply-side conditions to improve. Number one, the logistics situation. Just uh, 12 months ago, we were discussing about port congestions, elevated uh, container rates, and lack of availability of all sorts of things, right? So now, over the past 12 months, things have definitely improved. Container rates have come down significantly. And that comes from a combination of two factors, one positive, one not so positive. So the positive one is increased capacity, as some of these companies have been investing in increasing their capacity. And the not so positive one is lower demand, which has been bringing prices down. The California Preliminary Grape Crush Report for 2020 was down nearly 7% from the year prior. President of Allied Grape Growers Jeff Bitter said the amount of wine grapes crushed last year was even lower than anticipated. Surprisingly, it was uh, a very light crop, lighter than pretty much anybody in the industry had estimated. 
most were thinking it would be anywhere between 3.5 and 3.8 million tons. And I was in that boat myself. And so for it to come in at 3.35 million tons was quite surprising. And it was the uh, third or fourth in a row that has been below 4 million tons. So we definitely knew it was going to be below 4 million. I don't think anybody thought it would be close to 4 million. Uh, The drought has played into that you know, line of thinking in terms of our inability to kind of have these average or above average crops given the drought we've been in. But again, I think the frost in April uh, and also that extreme heat wave we had Labor Day week in September really affected the crop more than we had imagined. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the USDA's Ag Outlook Forum included an update on the organic industry. Tom Chapman, CEO of the Organic Trade Association, was one of the speakers. I talked with him just before his presentation. Yeah, the, the panel I'm on is speaking about preventing fraud and protecting integrity in the organic steel. But really what it's about is the measures we're taking to ensure consumer trust in that organic label. Uh, the trust is already quite high, but we're taking measures to ensure that that trust stays. Um, and um, none of the recent fraud cases in the last few years, uh, just taking measures, the, the measures that have been taken to mitigate those uh, fraud cases and prevent them from happening again in the future. He told me there are new steps in the process. Yeah. So uh, in January, the USDA published the Strengthening of Organic Enforcement Final Rule, Um, It's the largest regulatory change since the organic regulations were first published in 2000. And it has about 14 different areas of the rule that are changed. Um, There's, I'll I'll touch on three of them, if if you will. These are the three I'll be talking about in my panel. But it brings under certification several entities that were previously exempt. So farmers, processors, uh, anyone who labeled the product as organic, all those entities always needed to be certified. And what it means to be organic um, doesn't change in this rule at all. But what it does do is bring a lot of exempt operations under that certification control. People like brokers, importers, exporters, uh, distributors of of products that wasn't packed but wasn't transformed, all of those entities were exempt in the previous uh, set of rules and created these loopholes where bad actors could try to, you know, fraudulently enter bad paperwork and turn conventional items on paper into organic. So what this does is really create a a traceable supply chain back from retail all the way to the farm, um, requiring every entity in that supply chain with a financial interest in the product to be certified. Uh, It also creates a critical control point at uh, import, uh, given a lot of these fraudulent activities are happening abroad. Uh, It creates an import uh, certificate system in collaboration with Customs and Border Patrol, as well as a centralized USDA database. So when 
products are entered into the U.S., they can be checked against um, acreage reports for those countries and ensure that the countries exporting have sufficient organic acreage to justify the imports coming from those countries. Uh, lastly, it, it, it requires that um, all operations create a fraud prevention plan. This is very similar to a, a food safety plan that you find at, at a lot of food processing facilities, but it's just a holistic look at the, the operations uh, risks in terms of fraud and its, its suppliers or its own operations and, and forcing them to develop a plan to mitigate those risks, address and mitigate those risks. He said while fraud is not common, it still needs to be controlled. Any case of fraud in organic is, is one case too many from our viewpoint and the viewpoint of our members. But in reality, fraud is still quite, quite rare. Uh, there's over 46,000 certified operations worldwide. And if you look at the, the USDA report cases for enforcement actions, you know, it represents less than 0.4% of those certified operations. So it's a very rare instance when it occurs. Most people out there are doing what they should be doing and following the rules. But, you know, as organic has grown and become a, a, a bigger marketplace, you know, it, it demands a price premium in the market. And that price premium is there because, you know, it, it costs farmers more to farm organically. Uh, and it's important that when a consumer picks up that product, they have that confidence that it really meets the values that they, that they expect. And so these standards just, you know, continue to work with the evolving marketplace to address the current threats and make sure that consumers can, can maintain that high level of confidence. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson, Fragnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, the U.S. Department of Agriculture released their February Cattle on Feed report, and the updated numbers show cattle and calves on feed for the slaughter market in the U.S. for feedlots with a capacity of 1,000 or more head was 11.7 million head on February 1st. That's 4% below February 1 of last year. And according to one expert, it will get even smaller as the year wears on. Gary Crawford has more details. The size of the U.S. beef cattle herd continues to shrink, and latest evidence of that is in Friday's USDA cattle on feed report showing placements into feedlots during January down 4%. Feedlot inventories February 1st at 11.7 million head. That's a contraction of 4% from February 2022. And Our projection is that uh, the cattle herd will likely contract further uh, in 2023. USDA economist Justin Cho told the USDA's Outlook Forum that a few weeks ago... Farmers reported that uh, they will retain about 6% fewer replacement heifers and about 5% fewer heifers are expected to calve. Leading to a 6% decline in beef production this year and of course prices are going to reflect that. We project our steer prices to go up about $15 above what we had in 2022. So about a 10% increase in steer prices at an average 159 a hundredweight. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Gary. Other numbers from that report show placements in feedlots during January at 1.93 million head was 4% below last year. Net placements, 1.87 million head. During January, placements in cattle and calves weighing less than 600 pounds were 405,000 head. 600 to 699 pounders, 420,000. 700 799 pounders, 540,000. 800 to 899 pounders were 402,000. 900 to 999 pounders were 1,000, while 1,000 pounds or greater were 65,000 head. Marketing to fed cattle during January at 1.85 million head was 4% above last year. 
And according to the latest dairy market report, the record exports last year indicate U.S. dairy's global reach. It shows 2022 ended with U.S. dairy exports setting a second consecutive record for a percentage of domestic production exported during an entire calendar year, 17.8% of U.S. milk solids production exported. That helped temper sluggish domestic consumption, while the year's final quarter saw the strongest quarterly annual growth of domestic American-type cheese consumption since the first half of 2021. That happened even as overall domestic use of all dairy products was below year-ago levels on a milk-equivalent basis. U.S. dairy cow numbers were up over year-ago levels by just under 30,000 cows each month during the fourth quarter, while U.S. milk production, which resumed last July, has done so at a steadily diminishing rate from August downward. If you'd like to see more of these numbers, you can go to the National Milk Producers Federation website, nmpf.org. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet Wise. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. What GMO crops are grown and sold in the U.S.? Well, there's corn, like me, soybeans, canola, sugar beets, and cotton. Typically, we're ingredients in certain foods. GMO alfalfa, corn, soybeans, canola, and cotton are used as animal food. And while you won't find many GMOs in the produce section, there are versions of GMO apple, summer squash, potato, and papaya in a few markets. Feed your mind with more GMO knowledge on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. The big are getting bigger. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. USDA's annual Farms and Land in Farms report shows the country's largest farms, with sales of $1 million or more, operated nearly 26% of U.S. farmlands. The agency also says there were 2.003 million farms in the nation during 2022, a drop of 0.5 percentage points from 2012. Around 88,660 farms, or 3.9% of the total, had sales of at least $1 million. Ten years ago, only 3% of farms made that category. The average size of the largest farms by sales was 2,927 acres, or 4.6 square miles, in 2022. In 2012, farms with $1 million in sales were an average of 2,481 acres in size. While the size of farms in the $1 million or more sales class increased, farms in every other sales class either decreased or remained the same. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. The California Association of Wine Grape Growers Foundation is now accepting applications for multiple scholarship opportunities. Each year, the foundation awards scholarships to high school seniors who plan to continue their education at a four-year or two-year school. There are three four-year scholarships available at $8,000 each for students who plan to attend any campus in the UC or CSU system. There are also three two-year scholarships available at $2,000 each for students who plan to attend any California community college. The scholarships are available to students whose parent or legal guardian is employed by a California wine grape grower. In addition, one Robert Miller Memorial Scholarship is available, which provides either $500 for Allen Hancock College or $1,000 for Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Applications are due March 4th, and more information is available at cogfoundation.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. 
This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Estate planning is critical to many farm families that are concerned about protecting the farming legacy for future generations. A trust might be part of the planning process, but how do you know when a trust is right for you? Whether you need a trust as part of your estate plan involves issues of control, asset protection, and family relationships. There are many types of trust to consider. A revocable living trust is your will put in trust form, and it involves retitling your assets into the name of the trustee. Properly done, this type of trust can avoid probate, and it keeps your assets out of the public record. An irrevocable trust can aid in minimizing taxes associated with death and may also help protect assets from creditors. There are also various types of charitable trusts that can help income tax planning if you're ready to retire from active farming. Other trusts might help isolate the value of a vacation home or shield against asset appreciation that might create a future tax problem. Insurance trusts are also a possibility if you have a large life insurance policy and a child that is to be the successor of your farming operation. Is a trust for you? Everyone's situation is different, but the major considerations as to whether you need one will be tax issues, cash flow, potential for divorce, heirs with lifestyle concerns, asset protection, and charitable intentions. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Consumers are more and more hearing terminologies such as climate-smart agriculture, carbon credits, and carbon farming, yet they may not comprehend what exactly those entail. Vaughn Stewart of Indigo Ag says some ag producers wonder what carbon farming is. So with that, it's time for some Carbon Farming 101. The market is emerging for carbon farming practices that generate carbon credits that are then sold to buyers who are trying to reduce their carbon emissions. For producers, it means doing farming as they usually do but enhance that with beneficial soil health practices, such as planting cover crops or no-till. These practices are actually working to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil, or in the case of reduced tillage or no-till, keep the carbon in the soil where it creates a richer, healthier soil. Carbon credits are based on two things, additionality and permanence. Let's say you haven't planted cover crop on a particular field yet and you add cover crop. That's an additional practice that is doing photosynthesis, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, putting it in the soil, and that additionality is what buyers are willing to pay for because they're running their factories or flying their planes or whatever it is that's producing carbon, and so something has to offset that, and it's that additional practice that does that. Permanence is it's going to stay in the ground for a long enough time to matter. It's not going to be a once and done. You're planting the cover crop or you're doing no-till and you're keeping it in the ground. An increasing number of private companies and public entities offer verification models that determine the amount of carbon sequestered in the soil. We measure that in terms of a ton of carbon equals one carbon credit. And beyond that, Third-party verification is conducted in most cases to register and verify these credits, a practice that leads purchasers to pay top dollar for credits. You, the consumer, may wonder what it has to do with you. Stewart explains carbon credits are sold to entities particularly companies making sustainability claims. You hear buyers who are saying, I want to be carbon neutral by 2030 or 2050. In fact, 38% of Fortune 500 companies have at this point made sustainability claims, many in the form of climate or carbon claims. A selling point to some eco-conscious consumers in considering product purchase or loyalty. 
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Well, the early 2023 rally on Wall Street continues to fade as we move into March tomorrow. Yesterday's bump, a weak attempt, we think, at a rebound after one of the worst weeks of the year. Investors are coming to grips with interest rate hikes that will go deeper into the year. One analyst predicting that a pause is now about the best we can hope for by the fourth quarter. And he adds it could be 18 to 24 months before rates actually decline. Target, Costco, and Lowe's scheduled to report earnings this week. Investors watching for insight into consumer spending. Agricultural stocks have generally performed well since New Year's. Deer and Company reporting fiscal first quarter sales up 35%. Valmont reporting sales up 24% year over year. And as we mentioned last week, farmland rental rates are up 20 to 30% over a year ago. By the way, an ag web survey shows a majority of producers have locked in their seed needs, fertilizer, and chemical needs for this spring. AgriLiquid will be at Commodity Classic next week in Orlando. Stop by and see their great product lineup as they celebrate their 40th year in business. They'll be in the trade show at booth number 2749. This is the Bottom Line Report. Cattle on feed report showing January placements down 3.5%, marketing's up 4%. Both are supportive numbers for live cattle and feeder cattle this week. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. A report says the Farm Bill should prioritize ag research. A report produced by the Farm Journal Foundation and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs says the U.S. needs to increase support for agriculture research and development in the next Farm Bill. The support would help make sure that farmers can keep feeding the world despite the challenges faced by agriculture. New innovations generated from agriculture research at land-grant universities and other public sector institutions can help increase farm productivity and economic growth. Despite that, public investment in agriculture R&D has declined in recent years. The report says the 2023 Farm Bill is an opportunity to increase funding for agriculture R&D and ensures that the U.S. is prepared for the challenges ahead. The USDA's Economic Research Service says ag research provides one of the highest returns of any public research investment, generating $20 on average for every $1 spent. Public investment is needed to complement private sector spending. An AFB contributed to that report. One might wonder why USDA plans to lead an agricultural trade mission this June to one of its top farm and food export markets, Japan. 
As Raya Brewster of the Ford Agricultural Service explains, We signed a U.S.-Japan trade agreement that was signed in 2019. So the last time we had a trade mission to Japan, we didn't have this agreement in place. A trade deal that has given several U.S. ag exports preferential treatment. Meeting that will be able to enter Japan either duty-free or preferential rates, as well as growing sales to Japan. Last year, the United States was Japan's top supplier of agriculture products. The United States exported over 14 billion dollars worth of product to Japan in 2022, and we see that actually increasing in the future. It's increased quite a bit since pre-COVID, and we like to think that has a lot to do with the trade agreement that we put into place in 2019. Among the American ag. Products of interest to Japanese consumers. Right now, we have a mix of products that ranges from corn, soybean, wheat to high-value beef, veal, pork, and poultry products. We're also seeing that there's a real demand for processed products, so processed fruits, craft beers, distilled spirits, consumer-oriented products. The June 5th through 8th trade mission will be unique. That we're going to do a two-city trade mission. So we're going to start off with a visit in Tokyo, and then we're going to move over to Osaka, giving our participants just that much more buyers that they can be exposed to. Yet much of the trade mission format for Japan follows a traditional itinerary. First is an educational component, so all the participants will get to hear from and learn from our experts in Japan. We'll do our business-to-business meetings, our one-on-one, face-to-face meetings with our U.S. exporters and buyers. From Japan, we will also be meeting with the government of Japan, USDA representatives, State Department of Agriculture representatives, to work to advance and improve our trading relationship. Applications for trade mission participation from interested ag trade organizations, commodity groups, agribusiness, and state ag departments are being accepted through February 27th. Details are available online at www.fas.gov. I'm Rod Bade reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Two CDFA committees have vacancies that are up for grabs. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has announced vacancies on two of its ag committees. Seats are open on the Citrus Pest and Disease Prevention Committee, as well as the Certified Farmers Market Advisory Committee. The Citrus Committee is seeking a grower from the Fresno County region. Who will serve until September 30th of 2024? The Certified Farmers Market Advisory Committee is looking for a producer or representative of agricultural organization that represents producers, as well as three alternatives: one producer or organization that represents producers, one alternate CFM operator or representative of operators, and one county agricultural commissioner alternative. The goal of these committees is to advise the CDFA Secretary on all activities associated with both statewide citrus-specific pest and disease work, as well as on all matters pertaining to the direct marketing program, which includes legislation, regulations, enforcement, administrative policies, and procedures pertaining to the marketing of California-grown agricultural products at certified farmers markets. If you'd like to find out more information on these committees and others, or the vacancies. Please contact CDFA. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. 
But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Today we have the latest episode of the Voices of the Valley, which features insights on the ag tech landscape from an investor's perspective. Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue, and welcome back for another episode of Voices of the Valley. And uh, I'm joined again by my uh, good friend, Candace Wilson. Candace, great to see you. Nice to see you, too. Dennis, and, and you it, sound as terrible as I did two weeks ago. Well, you know, it's my turn in the saddle. Who knew you could uh, catch something via Zoom? So I'll blame you. But uh, we've got a great guest in Kirk Haney today, who I'm excited is here for a couple of reasons. He's a local boy that makes good. So he's from Salinas, as I am. And in fact, I would say local boy that makes very good. Very excited to visit with him. He's the lead of Radical Growth. And uh, Kirk, thanks for uh, joining us today. Great to be here, Dennis and Candice. Nice to see both of you. Well, we're excited to uh, visit with you. You know, I occasionally like to tell guests, I Googled you. I didn't really need to because I know a fair amount about you. But then when I Googled you, I, you know, I kind of cocked an eyebrow. I was like, holy cow, this guy's got a really diverse and varied past. And uh, which really has led to, you know, what you're doing with Radical today. So, you know, I'd like you to kind of reflect back on your career before we get to what you're currently doing with Radical, because uh, there's been a lot going on in the last several years. Well, you know, I think it's a great example of how to channel ADHD into maybe a potentially fulfilling career, right? You could argue I've been all over the map, but I can tell you a story about how that coalesces in a very cohesive strategy, which I assure you it was not, but I can tell the story like it was. Uh, yeah, you know, you're correct. You know, born and raised in Salinas, California. So it's great to be here. It's great to get back to the ag community. And, you know, Dennis, it's been great to get to know you over the years. You know, people have wondered, like, are you really from Salinas? It's like, yep, graduated Salinas High School. And, you know, that ties into my career a little bit because I understand the complexity of agriculture. I grew up around it, but I didn't start my career in agriculture. So it's kind of fun to come full circle and be working in agriculture full time because I kind of know what I don't know, and but I know the people to ask. It's a phenomenal network in Salinas. It's a great ecosystem I have access to, and it drives a lot of questions and helps us make great investors. And coming full circle to Radical, we call ourselves a company building platform. That's a fancy way of being an early stage ag tech investor. And we'll talk about what early stage means, but we really like to find big market opportunities some technologies coming into agriculture, solving big problems and phenomenal teams. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about what that means. We've made 17 investments in the space. Our portfolio has been incredibly strong. 
from not only a return, but also impact, which we'll talk about. 100% of our portfolio positively impacts at least one United Nations Sustainable Development Goal, which we're very proud of that because that's a common language, the UN SDGs. But internally, we have a proprietary framework for how we apply that towards our you know, food and ag focused business. When we say early stage, we'll invest 250000 to a million dollars typically to help get some companies off the ground. Typically, the companies are formed. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. My background, again, born and raised in Salinas, started my, the first part of my career was in high tech. So Silicon Valley, working in data networking. And we think about wireless connectivity now and think about hardwired networks back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I had a phenomenal experience being an entrepreneur, working in an entrepreneurial environment, seeing an innovation ecosystem evolve, watching the corporate enterprise get digitized. And that really ties into, I think, some of our strengths in investing at Radical. Then became an investor. I was fortunate enough to have an exit in high tech. We took a company public and sold it to Cisco. And I'd like to say C-I-S-C-O, not S-Y. And so not the food system, but the IT vendor. And that was kind of my first foray into entrepreneurship. Started a few companies. I actually have started four companies, had three exits. And that's a funny way of saying either sold it or took it public. And I say four out of three, because that also means I had a, had a failure as well. And I think uh, I probably made more mistakes than the highest return I made for investors. And and you learn a lot from every investment you make, every company you run. And one of the things I think that makes us really successful at Radical is my investing partner and I, Neil Gutterson, the former CTO of Corteva, he and I have both been startup CEOs. We've both had exits. We've both sold companies. And we really know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. We know what it's like to be in the chair. We know what it's like to be a founder. We know what it's like to struggle to form capital, raise capital. We know how hard it is to hire people. We know how hard it is to get people to listen to you. And I think that results in kind of an empathy for the entrepreneur that a lot of investors don't have. You know, Silicon Valley has some of the smartest people in the world, but if you haven't been an operator, if you haven't been an entrepreneur, how do you really know how to coach, mentor, and help an entrepreneur? And that's one of the things that really makes Radical different. We've been there, we've been in the chair, we know what it's like, we know the struggles, and that helps us coach entrepreneurs to success. I remember the first one-on-one -on -one that we had, and that's exactly what you hung your hat on, one of the things that you were really proud of at Radical. So Kirk, I'm curious, describe some of your biggest wins, the things that you're most proud of. Well, personally, some of my biggest wins and why I love doing what I'm doing. You know, at the stage in my life and career, I love being a coach and I love working with every entrepreneur in our portfolio. And that doesn't mean attending board meetings and doing the governance things we need to do. That's very important. I love kind of the sidebar conversations. I love an entrepreneur calling me and saying, hey, I have this situation. So having that trusted relationship where they can call me and say, hey, Kirk, take your investor hat off, take your board hat off, put your entrepreneur hat back on. Here's the problem I'm facing. How can you help me solve this? What would you do? Who do you know? How can you help? And having that trust in us at Radical and specifically, I get a lot of joy out of that because our entrepreneurs know that you know, the sooner we can identify a problem with them, the sooner we can come to a solution. You know, I always tell entrepreneurs, no surprises at the board meeting. So keep your investors and board members informed, but it's not just a problem's work. Those that have operating experience, help them think through those issues and challenges. And at Radical, I would say, we don't have all the answers at Radical, but we know all the people who do. Our ecosystem is global. It's massive. We know a lot of people. And again, we've been in the chair and we know when to say, I don't know, and how to access those people. So you know, a lot of individual company wins, a lot of great returns, a lot of great financial returns for investors. But what I really enjoy is working with the entrepreneurs, coaching and mentoring, and helping to build companies. 
question. You know, when you have those sidebar conversations, is there kind of a weighted average for entrepreneurs on what's their biggest problem or what they have to overcome? Or is it just across the board? It's always across the board. You know, I think I'll say there are two enemies to every startup, time and money. Okay. So, you know, we're investors, so we can help with problem two. And we have over a hundred co-investors. That's one of the big things we do and how we help entrepreneurs is capital formation. So if we can develop the right plan together, right? Entrepreneurs are notoriously optimistic. That's one of the things we love about them. And one of the things that we try to temper a little bit. So an entrepreneur will come to us and say, here are the eight things I'm going to do in 2023. We say, awesome, love the tenacity, but here's the one thing you need to do, not based on our opinion, but based on our due diligence and checking our ecosystem. Here's the one thing you need to do in 2023. It's going to cost you a million five to do that. Here's a million from us. Our friend's going to put in a half a million. Okay. Now you have the money. Now you have the right plan and the right amount of time. Let's go solve that initial problem that gets to kind of what we call a value inflection point, right? A little bit of visibility that the technology is solving the problem. And then we go through that next part. Along the way, right? Every, 100% of our portfolio companies have hit a brick wall. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of today's agriculture news right now. In today's Agronomic Minute, brought to you by UPL, a leader in sustainable crop management solutions for California's orchards and vineyards. And we're talking with Cassie Reeser again today, Technical Services Manager for Biosolutions for UPL. And now growers have quite a few different issues that they have to deal with between disease and pest pressures to meeting sustainability goals and uh, keeping plant and soil health in mind. And so, Cassie, how are you folks working to help producers uh, navigate some of those challenges? Yeah, you're right. Growers have a lot on their minds. So to alleviate that, UPL has created Pronutiva, which is our integrated system-led approach to crop protection that helps solve multiple problems at once. Produtiva combines powerful conventional products with our sustainable bio solutions from our natural plant protection portfolio in order to create an integrated program that can cover a lot of the needs that you mentioned uh, throughout the crop's life cycle. So we've actually seen this to be successfully put into practice in a variety of trials achieving positive results in both disease and pest control, uh, as well as increasing plant stress tolerance and crop quality metrics, including grapes, apples, tree nuts, and other produce. And now if if I'm a grower kind of looking at this or or considering maybe um, learning more about it, I mean, what's an example of, of how this approach or how this program might work for a grower? Sure. For example, we can look at walnut growers and bloom diseases since we're in in that time frame right now. So walnut growers and how they manage walnut blight. So we've seen research that shows copper resistance within walnut blight, but with a rotational plan and incorporation of different 
materials, different uh, fungicidal materials, growers can help combat that resistance. So for example, a rotation of mancozeb and copper being the more traditional chemistries put into place, plus incorporating a product like UPL's Kasumin in there help to really combat these resistance issues. And uh, it's a great example of how Pronutiva can be implemented in the field. If growers are looking at this program, it seems like um, you might be able to individualize it in terms of, okay, this is what I'm using now, and these are the options that I might be able to use as part of this kind of holistic approach to things? Yes. So depending on disease, depending on growers' goals, you know, some growers have, you know, more sustainable goals in mind. Some people want to increase either crop protection or soil health. We can customize our approach to, you know, include any or all of these metrics. And um, just lastly here, if uh, a grower wants to get some more information on this and how they, um, you know, might be able to implement this type of approach, uh, where might they be able to go to get that information? Yeah, to learn about any of our UPL products, they can go to our website, upl-ltd.com slash US, and they can go under the products tab and look at our biosolutions products as well as our conventional materials. Well, very good. And again, this has been the latest installment of the Agronomic Minute, a weekly segment made possible through a content partnership with UPL. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgNetWest online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at AgNetWest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the AgNet News Hour from AgNetWest. AgNetWest Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.